I'll encourage you to grab a Bible if you brought one, and uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 14 to 22 this morning. So if you brought a Bible, you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some black hardcover Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and you can use that this morning. Um, The hardest part of being a preacher is that I have like 35 to 40 minutes each week to preach on a few verses way, and uh, when in reality... um, this entire letter was read in, in one sitting. So the church would have received a letter from Paul and in, in one go, someone would have stood up and read the entire letter. Now, this is on my mind because I've had some really good conversations with people over these last few weeks where, you know, you preach on a section of chapters, you know, 8 through 10, which are Paul's one thought about meat sacrifice to idols, Right, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul is giving a big, uh, drawn-out argument about what do you do with this, this complicated topic of meat sacrifices idols, and then we look at like eight verses of it. And it's so funny. I've had really good conversations with people that they're like, I don't know about that last message, Andrew. I uh, feel a little uncomfortable about it. And then the next week comes, and then I've had a few people that were like, Okay, now I understand (laughs) what you were getting at. You couldn't cover. I wish we could just read all of chapters 8, 9, and 10 together because that's how it's meant to be read. So um, it's one drawn-out argument. Let me just kind of remind you and fill you in as we, uh, of what we've looked at. So in chapter 8, Paul says, he's he's answering a question that the church had, and and it says, now concerning food offered to idols. So clearly someone had had written a letter to Paul saying, what do we do about this, Paul? What do we do about food that has been sacrificed, meat that has been sacrificed to Baal or to Artemis or to Asherah or whoever? What do we do with that? Do we stay away from it? Do we partake? Do we eat? Do we go to the temples? Do we go to the parties that are, are there? And Paul begins by basically saying in chapter 8, well, meat isn't really anything, and idols aren't anything. So you walk by a statue of Baal, and it's wood, it's metal, it's nothing. Baal doesn't exist, it's not real. And yet he says, but for the sake of weaker brothers and sisters, maybe you shouldn't partake in that. Don't eat that meat. And he actually says, "If if it causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Right, So are you willing to lay aside your, your rights and your freedoms in order to help uh, your fellow Christians? But here's what you have to understand. The people in Corinth um, wanted to go far beyond that. It wasn't just, I just want to eat meat. The people in Corinth were saying, I want to go to the temple celebrations. All my friends go. It's a great party. I want to go to the temple and participate and eat the meat and, and be there, and there was this idea of like, what's the big deal, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm protected by God. Why can't I just go and participate in idol worship just to get the meal aspect of it? So we have to remember that. Corinth, the people in Corinth weren't just arguing, we want meat, we want meat, right? They were like, I want to go to the temple and participate. And so Paul then in chapters, uh, chapter 9 gives an example of his own life. He says, look, I have rights as an apostle and I lay them aside, so you guys should be able to do this too. And then last week we saw 
um, that Paul gives these warnings that it's actually possible for you and I as followers of Jesus to shipwreck our faith if we're not so careful to just run the race that God uh, has laid out for us. And he specifically gives examples from Israel. He says, look, Israel, they messed around with idolatry, didn't they? And they messed around with sexual immorality and with testing God and with grumbling. And look what happened to them. Like hardly any of them made it to the end, into the promised land. And then we, we ended last week in verse 14 where Paul says, so then flee from idolatry. Hey, Paul, can I go to the temple and participate in idol worship? No, you can't do that. It'll shipwreck you. Don't even mess around with it. Like, flee from idolatry. So now, this week, verses 14 to 22, Paul is again going to lay out an argument for why followers of Jesus can't be followers of Jesus and also participate in idolatry, in pagan ceremonies and in pagan worship. Um, So Paul, right, he's going to lay out, look at verse 14, he says this, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. And it's almost as if Paul is anticipating the question that the church would say, which is, well, why? Why should we, Paul? Why? Give us a reason why we should flee from idolatry. It's a command, but tell us why. And so Paul, in, in verse 15, he says this to them, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So this is brilliant. If you're a parent or, uh, or just think back to when you were a kid, the worst reason that your parents gave you for doing something was what? Because I said so. <laughs> I love that we all have that memory, but it's like, go clean your room. Well, why? Because I said so. Go do your homework. Why? Because I said so. And I remember as a kid that that answer would drive me crazy. I'm like, that's not an answer. Just tell me why. Like, so even with our own kids, we'll tell them to do things. And the temptation is like, well, I'm the dad, so just do what I say. But uh, uh, we try really hard to like, me and my wife will often tell our kids, listen, you have chores to do, you have things to do. And then they'll complain about it. And we're like, listen, we're not your enemy, we are trying to help you be hard workers, and we're trying to show, help you develop discipline and self-control, and we'll give them reasons why. Now, they still have terrible attitudes, but at least they heard the reason why, right? So here's what Paul could have done. Paul could have said, flee from idolatry because I told you to, because he's an apostle. He writes with the authority of God, right? He could have said, just do what I say, church, Flee from idolatry because Paul the apostle is telling you to. But that's not what he does. In verse 15, he says, listen, you're sensible people. Judge for yourselves. Paul's now going to give them some reasons for them to consider. Why should you flee from idolatry and and not even mess around with it? So Paul's actually going to give them three reasons, three explanations why idolatry and Christianity just can't go together. And so he's like, use your brains, use reason and understanding to to kind of tease this out a little bit, the reasons why. So we're going to look at three reasons why idolatry cannot go together with Christianity. And really what Paul's getting down to when you boil it down is what does singular devotion to Jesus look like? So the first reason in verses 16 to 18, why should we flee from idolatry? Number one is, well, idolatry is inconsistent. So he says this in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So you might be wondering, like, this is a strange road to go down, Paul, to argue against idolatry. But here's what he's doing. He's comparing, he's using an example of the Lord's Supper, communion, that the church would do every time it gathered uh, to, to prove his point. So he says, when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, you are participants, you're participating in the body and blood of Christ. Now, like time out, we're going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> right? Especially if you're new to church, you're like, what body and blood and what is happening here? So what he's saying is the word participation is the Greek word uh, koinonia, and it means a, a fellowship or a partnership with something. Basically, the, the word to, to participate with someone means that you are aligning yourselves with that person. You're fellowshipping with them. You're aligning yourselves with them. You're partners with them. So what, what Paul is saying is when we gather around the communion table and we eat the bread and we drink the, the cup... It's this symbol of the solidarity and fellowship that we have with Jesus and with one another as believers. So it's like this fellowship meal, and in the, old, in the early church, it was a full meal. This fellowship meal that they ate, they ate aware that they were eating in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, we're by faith, we're looking back at the cross, at the sacrifice that's been made, and as we're eating, we're realizing, again, the benefits that the gospel has in our lives. Now, here's what we've done with communion as Christians. Uh, denominations and churches and Christian movements, we, we do one of two things. We either overemphasize what is happening at communion, or we underemphasize what happens at communion. So if you think about some Christian movements and some um, churches and denominations, they will say when we take communion and the pastor prays, the bread and the wine literally transform into the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. And they'll say, well, Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He must have meant it literally. So some churches will say when you take communion, you are not figuratively, you are literally drinking Jesus' blood. And literally eating his flesh. The, they transform into them. That is an, an overemphasis on the spiritual things that happen during communion. Um, the, the wording that Jesus uses, the wording that Paul uses, it, it, it cannot be that. And Israel's example, the pagan examples, it doesn't allow that kind of interpretation that it magically transforms into literal blood and literal flesh. What Jesus means is that he is present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we go, well, we don't want to overemphasize the spiritual nature of communion. However, then, lots of Christians and lots of churches and lots of denominations underemphasize communion. I would say we are guilty of that. In this denomination, we underemphasize and we go, time out, whoa, 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 okay, it's just a symbolic thing, there's no spiritual nature behind it, which I think Paul would say, wrong, there is something spiritual happening. What is happening is 
the presence of Jesus is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are participating in something. There's a spiritual nature to it. We are one with Jesus, and we're one with one another. So we don't want to underemphasize it. There is a spiritual strengthening that happens when we take communion together. And so it's this idea of the giving and the receiving of the bread and the cup. It's, it's meant to be this covenant pledge of loyalty and solidarity to Jesus. So when we eat and we drink, we're saying, yes, again, I'm reminding myself, I am a follower of Jesus. I have pledged my life to him. So communion, the Lord's Supper, is this reminder that Jesus has purchased Christians to be his And Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, in turn, you've pledged yourself to be his. And communion is meant to be this spiritual reminder of that. That's what's happening. We're reminding ourselves. There is a spiritual nature to communion. Um, The best example of the word koinonia and fellowship and partnering and us participating, uh, it's, it's marriage. That's why throughout the Bible, Jesus is called the groom And his church, his people, are called the bride. It's meant to be a picture of the sacredness of the covenant of marriage. And if you've been to, probably all of us in this room have been to a wedding, right? Uh, And the bride and the groom, they stand up and they, um, they speak vows to one another. Now, this is my biggest pet peeve because vows in our day and age has just been, well, just say things that you like about them. That is not a vow. It's not like, I just love you, and I love your smile, and I love your hair, and you make me laugh. Those might be true things. Those are not wedding vows. Wedding vows are you, literally, I'm covenanting. I will protect you. I will serve you. I am vowing to be with you through sickness, death, until death. That's a vow, right? You're covenanting yourself to them. And Jesus and the church It's meant to be this picture of a bride and a groom who are saying, we are covenanting ourselves to one another. And it's as if communion is a renewal of the vows each time. You're reminding ourselves, right, these are the vows that I took. I am loyal to Jesus and Jesus alone. So what Paul is getting at, why does he bring up this example related to idol worship? Well, he's saying, okay, you come to church, you come to the gathering, You take communion, you're renewing your pledge to Jesus, and then the next day you're going to the temple of Baal, and you're participating in a meal there. So Paul's saying, do you see how inconsistent that is? It would be like me saying my vows to my wife, and then the next day saying, see you later, I'm going to go sleep around with someone else. And it's as if, well, did those vows mean anything? Do you realize how inconsistent it is to be like, yeah, I'm married, I said the vows, but I like to go sleep with other people. Paul's going, you can't do that. You can't come to the the church gathering and participate in this meal and then say, no problem if I go and participate in all the other meals as well. He's going, it's just completely inconsistent. God has pledged himself to you and you have pledged yourself to God How can you go, church, and participate in all of these other idol meals? So what Paul is getting at is following Jesus means exclusive loyalty and allegiance, which in that day and age was very, very rare. In the Roman Empire, um, 
uh, syncretism was huge. And syncretism is basically, let's just worship all of the things at the same time. And so even in the Roman Empire, there was no issue. Sure, you want to worship Jesus, that's fine, but you also have to worship Caesar, and you also have to worship and allow all the other worship to take place. And the reason Christianity was so scandalous is that the apostles and Jesus said, actually, you are only allowed to exclusively worship Jesus, no one else. And the, the Roman Empire said, well, okay, worship Jesus, but still take the incense and, you know, say Caesar is Lord and worship Caesar too. What's the big deal? Worship both of them. And what Paul is getting at is if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you can't worship Jesus plus anything else. Jesus demands your exclusive loyalty. So, so idolatry and the Corinthians' desire to participate in the idol worship ceremonies he goes, well, it's completely inconsistent. You can't live like that. Flee from idolatry. Reason number two. Why? Why should I flee from idolatry? Well, idolatry is demonic. Verse 19, Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So notice what Paul's doing. He's saying, okay, second reason why you should not participate in these idol worship ceremonies and eating the feast is because... Um, there's, there's demons behind these idols. But notice, notice that he clarifies. Because earlier in chapter 8, in the same argument, he said, an idol isn't anything. You're not, it's nothing. It's just a statue. And eating meat, it's nothing. And so I, I love that he's saying, well, what am I implying now? That food offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything? He's like, no, I'm not changing my mind. Those things are still inanimate things. They don't matter an idol carved into the shape of some random god is still nothing. And if you eat the meat, it's still nothing. But, he says, what I'm implying is, whether you realize it or not, when you sacrifice to false gods, you are actually offering sacrifices, sacrifices to demons. And, and don't participate with demons. Yes, the food that you eat at the temple is nothing, However, there are very real spiritual things going on that you can't see at these ceremonies. And again, he reiterates the point. He says, you can't drink the cup of Jesus and the cup of demons. They just, they just don't go together. They're mutually exclusive. It reminds me, um, actually, Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the, the, the Corinthian idea that, well, I can go and participate in this meal honoring Jesus, and then I can go and participate in this meal honoring Baal, and there's no repercussions. Paul's like, no, you can't, you can't do both. They're mutually exclusive. And actually, you're participating in things that are demonic. Something supernatural is involved in idol worship and participating in it, you're actually uniting with the demonic and it can corrupt the sanctity of your relationship with Jesus. Now, for us in North America, 2,000 years removed, this is really hard for us. 
Because if you grew up in North America, you have grown up in the predominant worldview, which is naturalism, which is only the natural world exists, only what you can see and hear and taste and touch. And you've swum in a culture that for decades have said the spiritual realm does not exist. There is no demons. There is no angels. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. And you might say, oh, I don't believe any of that, but I guarantee that your thinking has changed because of naturalism. And when we start to talk about demons, you kind of go, okay, settle down. Do those things actually exist? Um, I'll give you an example. So years ago when I was a youth pastor, um, there was a, a, a kid in our youth group that came from a very um, just troubled, broken home. His dad wasn't in the picture, and there was just a lot of you know, alcohol abuse and um, just bad, bad things. And he came, and he was a follower of Jesus. And I remember one day before youth, he showed up, and I could tell, oh, man, something is wrong. And he sat down, and he said, Andrew, um, I believe that there was a demon in my room last night. And you want to know, my, shame on me, my first thought was like, eh, really? What did you eat last night before you went to bed? Maybe it just kind of like messed with you. Like, like come on, buddy, really? Rather than going, okay, uh, you saw something, so we need to process this and talk about what that means. And, and uh, we do that, though. We just want a naturalist solution to everything that happens when in reality the biblical worldview is that there is a very real physical world that you and I live in but there is a very very real spiritual realm and there are angels and there are demons and there are spiritual creatures that you do not see and sometimes in scripture the word revelation it it the word apocalypse it literally means that the veil was pulled back a little bit so that you could see what's what's actually going on so Paul says, you, you stroll over to the temple to participate in a great meal at the, the temple for Baal. And you can look at that and go, the idol's nothing, the food's nothing, who cares? Oh, brother, sister, if the veil was pulled back, you would see that demonic worship is happening. And so Paul says, you can't participate in idolatry because it's demonic. Um, C.S. Lewis made a... Uh, a great quote in his book, The Screwtape's Letters, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, meaning demons, are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He's saying that human beings, we usually fall into one of two errors. We either are like, demons don't exist, that's so silly, or we're thinking that every single, like there's a demon behind every tree trying to get me and we're just obsessed with it. And Lewis says, well, actually both are errors that the demonic would be happy for you to fall into. So we have to walk this middle line where we go, uh, don't deny that the, that the demonic exists, but also, like, don't go out at, to the parking lot and your car won't start. Ah, get behind me, Satan. It's like, no, no. Whew, take a breath, right? Like, your car just might not start, right? So uh, there's not demons behind everything trying to get you, but they exist. And idolatry in and of itself is demonic. Dem Listen, the demonic, they hate God. And they hate you if you're a follower of Jesus, and they will do everything possible to pull you away from God. So like I said last week, yes, we don't go to, 
we're not tempted to go to temples and bow down to statues. But our idols, I think there's still demonic things behind them. And you go, really? Well, it's just money. It's just sex. It's just beauty. It's just power. It's just our kids. The things that we place above our allegiance to Jesus. And don't fool yourself. There very well may be demonic forces pulling you away from Jesus. Where you go, yes, you know what? You should be obsessed with making more money. And you should be obsessed with the power that you can have at your job if you just climbed the ranks. Yes, that should be more important to you than Jesus and church and fellowship with other believers. Yes, sex should be your God. And what's the big deal? And who cares? And it's harmless. And those very well might be demonic thoughts pulling you away from Jesus. So Paul's like, flee from it. Don't mess around with it. Don't try and flirt with it. Like, run the other way. Idolatry is inconsistent and it's demonic. Thirdly, why should we flee idolatry? Well, idolatry is offensive. Verse 22, Paul ends by saying this, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I mean, idolatry is... is Offensive because it is an offense against our Lord. It's offensive to God when we, when we participate in idol worship. And listen, all over Scripture, we are told that our God is a jealous God. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the sky, you shall not bow down to them to, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told, your God is a jealous God. Even in the New Testament, James 4, 4 and 5, James says to the church, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, if you, if you hear that, okay, well, God is a jealous God, it might rub you the wrong way. You might go, isn't jealousy a bad thing? Don't we try and teach our kids, well, you know, don't be jealous? But here's why God's jealousy is actually the right thing and a good thing. One aspect of God's jealousy is related to his holiness and his power in which God is to be understood as so absolutely without equal that he will not allow rivals to undivided devotion to him. Like when we talk about jealousy, it's because we're talking about human to human. But when you think about how different God is than us, how holy and powerful and awesome and majestic and mighty and perfect he is, it would make perfect sense that God will not allow worship of anything else because nothing else compares to him. Of course he's jealous for us. But here's the other aspect God is actually jealous for our sake. And his jealousy is not sinful emotion or envy. God is jealous for our well-being. And here's what I mean. Like when, when you think about jealousy, so let's say, um, here's a made-up example. 
Let's say um, my neighbor got a, a brand new truck, and I look across the street, and I'm like, man, I'm so jealous that he got that truck. Who's the, who's the jealousy for? It's for me. I'm jealous for my sake. I'm jealous because I'm like, I want that. That's not fair. It's not fair that he gets the truck and I don't. And so my jealousy for the truck is for my own well-being. I'm going, it's not fair. I deserve that. When you read scripture, um, if you have a Bible, you can uh, flip to Hosea chapter 11. God's jealousy is so often for our well-being. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is aware that as you walk away from him, no idol will ever satisfy the longing in your heart. So he's jealous for your sake. He goes, I know that they're going to walk away and they will be more broken and more empty. I am jealous that they would come back to me. Hosea 11, you you know, you read the Old Testament prophets and so much of it we assume is, oh, well, it's just God being really angry at Israel and he's going to punish them. And there are, yes, that's true. But in Hosea 11, look at this. As God thinks about his people wandering away, it says, this is God speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, that's Israel, to walk. I took them up by their arms. And they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. Verse 7, if you, if you jump down, he says, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you see? God is jealous that we would not worship anything else. Yes, because he is worthy, solely worthy of praise, but also because he knows that idol worship will destroy you. And he goes, these are my people. I taught them how to walk. I fed them. I led them. And yet they're bent on walking away from me. I think it's devastating to God when we we worship other things. That he goes, oh, if you only knew, that won't satisfy you. Really, if Jesus in the church is a picture of a husband and a wife, um, I've sat with with many spouses whose, whose spouse has cheated on them. And it's devastating. And both men, wives, and husbands have sat in my office just weeping, utterly devastated. And for us to think that, well, it's no big deal if I worship God and worship other things, I think it's devastating to him that he goes, why, why are you walking, why are you cheating, why are you cheating on me? Why are you walking away from me and, and pursuing all these other things? Idolatry is, is wrong because it's offensive to our God who saved us. And God knows that we will run after money and power and sex and beauty, and we will always be empty. So what Paul is getting at, I think, is what does soul devotion to Jesus look like? 
Why shouldn't we participate in, in idol worship? Why shouldn't the Corinthians go and participate in these pagan feasts? Well, because you're devoted to Jesus. Um, let me end with this illustration. I, I heard a, a pastor share this letter, and it just, hopefully this kind of drives us home. But in 1957, um, Billy Graham, at one of his big events, uh, read a copy of a letter that he had received and the letter was written by a university student after this student had gone to Mexico and become a communist. And so uh, this is what this new communist man wrote. Um, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the, the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a, a, philosophy, a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we're adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. What if you took that letter and just replaced the word communist with Christian or Jesus? Would that describe your life? singular devotion to him where you go, man, I work at this all day. I dream about it at night. It's hold. His hold grows on me. It doesn't lessen. I'm willing to die for what I believe. Like if, if, if someone followed you around for the week, let's say, and just observed your life, regardless of all the things they might say about you at the end, do you think someone would say, above all that, I know for a fact that they're a follower of Jesus. I, I watch them, and there is no denying. They love and are devoted to Christ. And if that's not your life, and you are a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe it's time to renew your vows. Maybe it's time to say, you know what, I've, I've been going and chasing after all of these other things. And enough, I don't want to live like that. It's not going to satisfy me. My, my idolatry and chasing after other gods is inconsistent. It's, it's demonic, and it is 
offensive to my Lord. So, Jesus, I just thank you for your word yet again. Um, um, God, even this week for myself, it is like a sword that pokes and prods in places that um, we don't always enjoy. Um, and that's really what conviction is. It's your Holy Spirit convicting us when we are living lives that are just inconsistent to what we say we believe. And so, God, I, I just pray that, um, that we would be people who are singularly devoted to you. That we, uh, as followers of you, Jesus, that we, that we wouldn't play these games with idolatry, that we wouldn't attempt to worship you, Jesus, when we're gathered together on Sundays and then go and worship all the other things in our lives, whether it be money or comfort or uh, beauty or sex or power or whatever it is, God. Help us not, help us to see the inconsistency of that. That it actually won't satisfy us. And that it, it ultimately, Jesus, is, is offensive to you. I pray that we would be loyal to you, Jesus, that we would be devoted to you. I, I pray that regardless of what and all the other things people might say about us, that when, when they ask about our lives, if we're followers of Jesus, they would say, well, I know for a fact that they love Jesus. I've seen their lives. I know for a fact that they are devoted to him. I pray that that would be the reality of our lives, that we would be singularly devoted to you, Jesus. So I pray that you would do that work in our hearts um, our motivation to obey matters, and our motivation to obey you is because of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. It's the gospel that motivates us, not trying to earn our salvation, not trying to appear holy in front of everybody else. Um, those kind of motivations will never last, but really the motivation is look at what my Savior has done for me. He gave everything to purchase me. So of course I'm going to give him my whole life. What, what choice do I have? So I pray that not only would we obey you, Jesus, but that we would long to obey you. That would be our motivation to please you and to serve you, Jesus. So just do that work in each of our hearts, God, uh, for our good and for your glory. And so we just pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.